organizations are very successful in remote areas and is in poor areas. I'm not saying that all terrorists are poor, but that's how they recruit. Those people are easy to convince them because they have nothing to lose. They're out of school, they don't have food, they don't have anything. So those people are prone to being radicalized or to join terrorist groups. Hi, and welcome to the 1CA podcast. My name is John McElligot, your host for today's episode. We're joined today by Dr. Abu Bakr al-Noor, who is a cultural conflict sociologist. He received a degree from Nova Southeastern University Department of Conflict Studies, and he's been currently working with uh, refugees and assisting with the Valkamir team. Uh, we had previously interviewed James Patrick Christian and Dr. Alex Nesich. So they have an extensive team of experts, uh, all of whom have advanced degrees and come from other countries. Dr. Elnor, thank you very much for being on the One Sea Podcast. Thank you for having me, John. I really appreciate this opportunity. Absolutely. We're glad that you're here. Uh, and, sir, I wanted to um, go a little bit into your background so that listeners can understand where you're coming from, conflict that you have lived through, and how that led to, to where you are today. You, uh, you and your family come from. Uh, how do you pronounce? This? Is it Zakawa people of South of Western Sudan and Chad? From Darfur, north, northern Darfur in Sudan. So, the northern Darfur region predominantly inhabited inhabited by uh, the Zakawa tribe and also the Four tribe in some part of it. Okay, could you tell people what most families do in that group? What, what's a typical family like, and, and what do people do to make a living? What they do for a living is uh, they are pastoralists in nature, and also they do some farming. But the thing that uh, they don't, they are not willing to do or they don't want to do is, uh, is joining, the, joining the military. So pretty much they do uh, raise animals such as cattle and camels. So cattle and camels uh, for sale? Is that uh, you take take the cattle and cow- camels to market for sale? Well, um, the first purpose of having these animals is like social status. That's the number one thing. And number two, you know, like if you need anything, then you take one, two, or three, or, you know, as many as you want to take them to the market, and then you sell them, and then you buy your, your needs. Mostly, they they have them for social status. So the more animal you have, the higher status that is. Oh, I understand. So, how many head of cattle or camels would a, a typical family have? Some people have like four hundred heads. Some people like three hundred heads. And some of them is like just fifty to one hundred heads of animals, okay. especially like camels. Wow, so that's it, it's a huge area, land area. So there must be just cattle everywhere grazing. Is it uh, is it a fertile area? Is there any grasslands? How do uh, how do people get by with access to water and food for the cattle? It's a, it's a desert, pretty much. So uh, that's why you know raising camels camels in that area is that's the ideal place to raise camels. Right, and also you know like the Zarawa region. 
that you know like stretched from Libya, south uh, south of Libya, and then east 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 of Chad, and then the northern part of Sudan. So that is the expansion of the Sahara Desert. Right. So how are people are nomadic people? Would you say? Yes, by nature they are nomadic. So uh, even though sometimes they live, you know, like uh, you have a family, you leave your family, and then you take your animals, and then you go, you know, just roaming in that the Sahara area, you know, looking for, you know, grazing lands for your animals and so on and so forth. So okay. they are they are nomadic by nature. Okay, Dr. Noor, you mentioned that. People there would not want to join the military. Why is that the case? Well, but, but because uh, the Zalawa tribe, you know, is like they rely heavily on, you know, trade. But because of that, uh, of the location, you know, the location of the tribe is between Libya, Chad, and Sudan. So they do that, like mostly, and they don't want to join the military. But, but because part of it also, these the Sudanese military, you know, like. Officers in the Sudanese military is like they are from same uh, tribes from the north. So whenever people from that region want to join the military, you just you know like just being like enlisted. Okay. Right. Not more. Not more. Not more of the officers. So that's why they don't want to join the military. Yeah. You know, working for working for someone. Uh, and then I think that's understandable, you know, like, uh, you should have that, you know, right, you know, to compete with others. Sure. And, and they, they're not on equal footing. They cannot compete for positions as officers uh, like people from other tribes can, it sounds like. Yeah, that's the number the number two uh, reason for not having or not wanting to join the military. Okay, understood, yeah. Sir, before you earned a degree from Nova Southeastern University, this was the Department of Conflict Studies, you had lived through conflict and experienced trauma yourself. And I, I, want, I wondered if you could talk to the listeners about what the Darfur conflict, the Civil War, was about and how that impacted your family because that was a, a watershed occurrence. That changed the trajectory of your life. Many people in America... I think they they heard about this conflict at a distance. You know, there were many uh, celebrities who tried to shed a light on what happened in Darfur, what continues to happen in their area. But could you talk to folks about what was the Darfur Civil War about? When did this begin? And how did it impact you? Well, uh, first of all, the, uh, the Darfur conflict, like the real conflict, started in 2003 but prior to that you know like uh, we had a lot of you know back and forth and some sort of conflict but not manifested as the way it is right now or at least um, the way it was in 2003 but um, let me give you a little bit of a uh, historical background of of that for before I before I delve into um, conflict and what caused it. So the um, Darfur, as, uh, the name Darfur, Dar in Arabic is the home, and then four is the tribe. So pretty much the name Darfur means the home of the four tribe. So the four tribe is number the number one tribe in, in Darfur. That's why they took the name 
and then there is another, uh, and then the Zagawa tribe, and then the Masali tribe, kind of like number three. And of course, there are other tribes, those who consider themselves as Arabs, but in nature they are nomads, so they are roaming from one place to another. Uh, prior to, to the, the kingdom of the four, there was a kingdom called the Tajo Kingdom, and that ruled the uh, region from 1100 to 1480. It's about 380 years. And then after this kingdom came another kingdom called the Tunjo Kingdom, and that also uh, was in charge from 1480 to 1640, and it's roughly about 160 years. And then the four kingdom came, and the four kingdom started from 1600, so 1640 until 1916, about 276 years. And then after that, you know, like the Darfur was annexed to the, to the rest of the Sudan in 1916. And then Darfur continued with Sudan until the independence, independence of Sudan, which was in 1956. And then um, after the independence, you know, like we had government that predominantly from north. And then the first government was, after the independence, was the, uh, what they, what they call it, the Council of State, the Sovereignty Council. Council. And that also started 1956, right after the independence, for two years until 1958. And then after that, um, there was a general called Ibrahim Abu took over through a coup d'etat or the military coup. And, that, and he ruled from 1958 until 1956. So about six years. And then the first democratic government was established by Al Azhari from 1965 until 1969. It's about also four years. And then another military coup It sounds I'm like uh, having, hundreds and hundreds of years of kingdoms um, ruling oh, yeah. the ruling the area, and then in, in modern times, even just the last fifty years or so, it's been a coup d'état repeated over and over, with some brief periods of stability, maybe if you call it that. But even under Al Bashir in the last thirty years, I guess that's been the most consistent leadership, I suppose. A series of tumultuous times since the kingdoms had folded into the modern-day nation-state of Sudan. That's what 
happened exactly. You know, like we had like three elected, so to speak, three elected governments only lasted for like 10 years in total. So that's the problem. And also, um, as a little bit of um, historical background, you know, like since the independence, we had pretty much five major conflicts. And all these conflicts are like in the periphery areas, not in the north, uh, nor in the middle of the Sudan. So the north-south conflict that started in 1955 and ended in 2005, that lasted about 50 years. A lot of people characterize that as like the conflict between Muslims, uh, Muslims and Christians. But so to speak, a lot of people say it's a struggle, it's power struggle. But people have their own opinions. They may agree or disagree, but uh, mostly about power. And also, there there was like was still going on the Nuba Mountain conflict in the west and the Blue Nile conflict also in the west south. And the bigger conflict, also uh, that was in the east, the eastern part of Sudan, and the Darfur conflict. So all these conflicts, you know, played huge role in just fueling resentment and conflict somewhere else. So the Darfur conflict came as a result of all the history that I briefly mentioned. You know, having you know governments from the north or the middle middle of the Sudan not having a lot of policy makers in, from the region, from Darfur. So that's why people view political causes or political, but through marginalization of the region, that's like one of the drivers that contributed to the Darfur conflict. Okay. So we feel that, yeah, the, the Darfur pe- Darfuri people feel that we're not sharing the wealth and power. Right. So I could see why. Yeah, that was the number one drive, uh, driver for the conflict. Also, okay. the inequality, people view uh, that foreigners are not equal as like, people from the north. Whether it's true or not, a lot of people view that way. You know, with equality in education, in healthcare, and a lot of things that people perceive themselves are, are not, are not being equal to their peers. And also, the, um, in Darfur, as I mentioned before, there are like, some Arab tribes, those who at least those, those who identify themselves with the Arabs, so the government armed those tribes, gave them some weapons. So also that one of the major drives for the Darfur conflict. And also, if I can add, I would simply say with other people, they failed with leadership. You know, like we had a coup after a coup. And all, most of these is like this failed leadership. Okay. And dict- dictatorship, corruptions. And also we have um, the politicization, uh, politicization of the religion, Islam in particular. Right. People are just trying to use that religion as a vehicle, trying to achieve some sort of gains through mobilizing people you know, like, we are this, we are, we are these people, we are against them, Muslims against Christians, Muslims against non-religious people, and so on and so forth. Right. And also, uh, there are um, some sort of external influences, like the Arab League, or at least some Arab countries, helped, or at least helped the Sudanese government in some 
some way or another as having the Sudanese government identifies identifying itself as like being an Arab elite. So the current government had a lot of support from the Arab League and some countries like Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and some Muslim countries like Turkey and so on and so forth. So that is the political part that sparked the Darfur conflict. Other people think that there are other environmental issues also, the scarcity in resources, and that has led to um, conflict between herders and farmers, right. the pastoralists and the farmers. And that, so, that's probably always been there, though. If, if they're nomadic peoples competing for resources for uh, feeding families and growing crops and feeding livestock, I, it's, I would think that in that region, over hundreds of years, those conflicts... Have they always been there, though? It's been there for so many years. And as you mentioned, you know, like the, due to the scarcity of resources between... You see the competition between farmers and herders. Those who have animals, they want their animals to graze on, on these lands. And those who own the farms, they want to, you know, benefit from the, crop, the crops that they grow. It. So you see a constant conflict between these two, uh, two groups. Okay. So that's that's one also, yeah. And also, there are other cultural cultural facts or drivers that contributed to the Darfur conflict, and the notion of identity. Who are you know like some people identify themselves with Arabs, and other people identify themselves as being Africans. So that is a huge struggle in the Darfur region. Right. And also, yeah, and there are also ethnic tensions between Arabs and non-Arab tribes and between, you know, like even within one group, like the Arabs, Arabs themselves and African tribes themselves. So also that is huge. And the last thing that I want to add to this one is like, uh, even though that is, it looks like political, so the government enforced the idea of acculturation. I call it post acculturation. So you have to adapt, you know, the Arab culture, whether you like it or not. So that's the identity issue, you know, like they force you to embrace other right. culture that you don't like it, or at least that's not yours. So these are the factors that led or at least contributed to the Darfur conflict. Okay. It started in 2003. And Continues today? Still continue. Yeah. Not as... It was in 2003 or four, but it's still, you know, it's not completely settled down. So I would consider it's still going on. Okay. Folks, you've been listening to an interview with Dr. Abu Bakr al-Nur. We're talking about the Darfur conflict. When we come back, I'll ask Dr. al-Nur about the research he's been doing on the underlying psychological drivers of violent extremism in some Muslim communities. The Civil Affairs Association continues to expand its value to its members. The association recently established the Professional Publications Advisory Board and a supporting research library. Founded by the late Dr. Kurt Miller, retired Army Colonel, the CA Association Professional Publications Advisory Board comprises scholars and policy and publications experts to assist civil affairs professionals in publishing papers and articles and established professional journals. 
As a service to association members, the board also provides a research library to conduct research on academic or professional papers. Check out the website to find out which board members may be of greatest help and request their assistance by emailing the board. This is an amazing resource that you won't find in many other associations. If you're not yet a member of the Civil Affairs Association, go online to civilaffairsassoc.org and join today. Thanks for listening to the 1CA podcast. Welcome back to our conversation with Dr. Abu Bakr Al-Noor. Dr. Al-Noor, I wanted to ask you about the research that you've been doing. Uh, so built on your experiences, you grew up in, uh, in Darfur, uh, Zakhawa people. You went on a journey as a refugee. We want to talk about your research, but first, could you, could you mention what was your journey like as a refugee? How did you get out um, and how did you find yourself in the United States? Um, I want to say here is, uh, well, I came here not as a refugee. I came here uh, with the D visa, the diversity visa, here to the United States. While the conflict was going on in 2003, I was lucky, you know, to, to come to the United States. But uh, I do have some friends who couldn't make it. Some of them died in the Darfur conflict in 2003, and some of them later on in 2004. So um, I'm sorry to hear that. I've been doing, uh, yeah, I, I, I've been doing uh, research on terrorism in general, terrorism and the the drivers of of terrorism, and also I work and I've I've been doing research on violent extremism, radicalization. So all these topics fall under the area of my expertise. Okay, and that's why uh, I've been working on these topics. So, sir, let's talk about that. We want to focus on the research that you've been doing for the underlying psychological drivers of violent extremism, and you focused on the the Muslim Uma, the Muslim community. Could you talk about what are, what are some of the key findings that you found? During my research, I found out that terrorism has no specific definition. People define terrorism based on a lot of things, and up to this point, there is no specific definition of terrorism. Even in the U.S., there are many definitions. The FBI has one definition. The uh, CIA has its own definition, as well as the State Department. The U.N., the United Nations, also has a different definition of terrorism. So we don't have a consensus about what terrorism is. But during my study, every day when I read and when I write something, I go and, and how could we find a, a concise definition of terrorism? A terrorist, from one person's view, a point of view, might be a hero of somebody else. One of the, the drivers of terrorism, and that is very broad, that's poverty. If the um, terrorist organizations are very successful in remote areas and is in poor areas, I'm not saying that all terrorists are poor, but that's how they recruit. Those people are easy to convince them because they have nothing to lose. They're out of school, they don't have food, they don't have anything. So those people are prone to being radicalized or to join terrorist groups. So okay. that's the number one is, is, is poverty. And also, you know, revenge. Some people 
people just do you know, uh, the act of terrorism, even though they might not know about it, it's terrorism, but they do it out of revenge. And as you know, you know, like in Darfur and in other countries in the Middle East or in the Muslim countries in general, you know, revenge is huge. Like honor killing, revenge, these things are still alive there. So some, a lot of people do um, terrorist acts as a result of, you know, revenge. And others do do it as being excluded. You know, like when you feel that you are left behind or left alone, you know, being excluded from, you know, any gathering is like to share power or to participate in a community. When people feel that sense, some, some people just resort to a violent act. Right. And one of these violent acts is terrorism or uh, violent extremism. Even though there is a, a difference between um, terrorism and extremism, terrorism is just the action. But violent extremism could be just ideas, you know, people have to the far left or to the far, far right with their views. They can be very violent in, in their views also, as opposed to radicalization is the process of being extremist or being terrorist at the end. Okay, so you uh, could say, for example, there are violent extremist organizations in the United States, and they may be sharing information, publishing their views online or in print, for example, or the radio or however they get them out. But then they radicalize in the process, and then the terrorism is the act. Yes, terrorism is the act. But uh, due to the uh, easiness in circulating information in this era, you see we have the internet, we have everything. So they spend their views easily to whomever they want to send to. This is the process of radicalizing people. People could be here in America or in Europe or somewhere, and the other people could be on the other side of the world, but they read their writings and they just get radicalized, and then they move from radicalization, which is the process, they move to the next step, which is being violent in their views or you know the way they behave, right. and then that is not enough, and then they move to the to the final step, which is being terrorist. They enforce what they believe in. Also, some people have ideological causes or, or beliefs, and those people are mainly those like religious people. And there is no single, you know, like one religion that is responsible for terrorism. There are some religion, like a lot of people who affiliate to certain religions are more terrorist than others. But it's still a lot of people, religious people, commit the act of terrorism. And that's all across religions. Right. Maybe Islam, Islam recently gained that, you know, um, um, very popular. A lot of people who executed the act of terrorism, like from the, that faith. But also, they have ignorant people out there. Yeah, they that are. Because some specific religion is violent in nature, but there are ignorant people who believe or who misinterpret these verses or the faith, and then they commit the act of violence or the act of terrorism in the name of that religion. Right. So That's these are point. kind of like the, cycles, the drivers of terrorism or the act of terrorism that I found. So the first component is social and economical, and then the second component is ideological. And the third and last component of these drivers is pretty much political. 
and then that's the denial of people's rights by governments. So okay. governments deny people their rights, so people turn into radicalization, and then in order to have the governments listen to them. And also, um, you see government repression. So some governments, especially in the Middle East, are so oppressive, people just turn into terrorists. And also, the, you know, like in the Middle East, or at least in Africa, there are areas where ungoverned, or at least poorly governed, the government is not controlling these areas, kind of open areas. And these are safe haven for terrorist groups. Like right now in Libya and in Chad and in Sudan, these vast desert, you know, like no control. You know, the government of Libya has no control of these areas, nor the government of Chad and Sudan. Right. So terrorist groups, you know, they control it. They, they control it and they use it as safe haven for, you know, and they grow and for training and all these things. Yeah. And if they and can also, only be slightly uh, better than the, than the formal government, then people will follow them people will be involved. Uh, that's correct. And also, you know, like we have some state sponsorship for this act. And as I said earlier, you know, like the notion of us versus them, those governments that use the notion of us versus government sponsor terrorism through gaining some popularity or some at least grassroots. A lot of governments do that. So these are the major drivers and all these drivers of course uh, impact or affect the psychology of people how they do things how they think about things and how they carry themselves in okay. order to execute those things so these are the findings that i i found it during my uh, my my research on the issue of terrorism dr Elnour, thank you very much for sharing that I, I was going to ask you as our final question what the marine corps has been learning from your work because you're on the staff of the Cultural Conflict Training Team at the Marine Special Operations School, and I wanted to ask you how the Marine Corps has been incorporating your research into their TTPs, their tactics, techniques, and procedures when they're working on civil affairs and uh, information operations. Uh, it sounds like you've laid out pretty clearly some of the main drivers for violent extremism or for members of the, the Muslim Ummah to be involved or to, to radicalize and carry out terrorist acts. Is that essentially how the Marine Corps is learning from your research by knowing more about the communities they may be targeting? The Marine Corps here is slightly different than the Marine Corps over Camp Pendleton in California. But uh, mainly I, uh, I teach culture in general. I teach culture for the Marines, you know, especially during the, uh, the first week of you know, like when we have like new students, I teach them culture. And that, you know, like could be very generic. I'm not focusing on uh, terrorism per se, but I teach very generic aspect of culture, especially the Arabic culture in the Middle East and also in Africa. Okay. Well, thank you very much, sir. I really appreciate the conversation we've had today. This is Dr. Abu Bakr al-Noor discussing the Darfur conflict, how it was connected with his family. He's since been able to earn a uh, doctoral degree from Nova Southeastern University, Department of Conflict Studies, and is working with the team at Valkamir. Dr. Anur, I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for being on the 1CA podcast. Thank you, John. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Thank you. 
Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of 1CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory.